Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you along for the ride. And by the way, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a long time. I mean, you didn't know it when you walked in or tuned in, but this is another one of those like best weekends possible to jump in at Keystone because today we begin a new series called Who is God? That for the next eight weeks, We'll explore what God has revealed about himself, his heart, his character, and how he wants to relate to people like us, uh, you know, as far as, as we come to know him. And it's an admittedly ambitious effort that will take us to passages all over both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for the first few weeks of the series, we're going to ex examine what God disclosed about himself to the people of ancient Israel through what we refer to today as the Ten Commandments. So buckle up, it's going to be an amazing ride. Uh, so to get us going uh, with our conversation for this morning, I want to let you know that the Ten Commandments really represented nothing short of a cultural earthquake in the ancient world, because they upended much of what people had always believed about religious rules. Uh, seriously, back then, people had been taught that if you wanted, if you, you had to sort of behave yourself into a right relationship with the gods. In other words, if you could do a bunch of good stuff and not do a bunch of bad stuff, or at least you did your best to keep the rules of a particular religion, then like the gods of that particular religion might do nice things for you. You know, things like accept you and bless you and answer your prayers and cause the rain to fall on your crops and, and maybe even give you like an upgrade in the afterlife. And if you didn't follow the rules, well, um, th they believe that you risk things like, uh, well, being the target of lightning bolts you know, in, in this life, right? And perhaps not having the rain fall on your crops and, and perhaps being the recipient of a downgrade in the afterlife. And now, as you can imagine, this was a terribly precarious religious framework in which to live. I mean, with this sort of understanding um, of the gods, you never really knew where you stood. And consequently, you could never really be at peace. And needless to say, I'm so glad that humans have moved past this understanding of God, aren't you? <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, and when I reflect on the many conversations that I've had with people, often in random locations, like sitting next to one another, watching our kids play on the oversized breakfast food back in the day at Woodland Mall, or, you know, at Starbucks, or just running into people, and I've got a Bible open, and I'm studying, and they just begin to ask questions, and we have a conversation, and they share things, you know, that like, when people that have left the faith will say things like, you know, I just never could follow the rules. It's like, I, I just felt like, you know, I, I went too far. I did too much. I said too much. I just never could comply with all the rules. And so I'm pretty sure that God wouldn't want anything to do with someone like me. And that's very much like what ancient people believed. That your past failures had disqualified you from a relationship with God. And they would go on to confess that, you know, because of this, this thought, they live with a constant fear. Like, I've gone too far. I've disqualified myself. God would never want to be in a relationship with someone like me. And, and I'm aware when I, when I sort of share that, those conversations, a few of you inside are going, yeah, uh, you could have had that conversation with me. In fact, I can't believe we're, we're talking about this today because that's my suspicion when it comes to faith. And you should know if you're here this morning, I am absolutely 
thrilled that you're with us. And I have some really, really good news for you. I'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. Uh, Though it's natural to connect your behavior to being accepted by God, it's not biblical to connect them. And and, and here's why I'm so comfortable saying this. 3,500 years ago, when God revealed the first of his religious rules for the people of ancient Israel, he did so in the context of a relationship that he had already established with them. In other words, and this is really one of the first things that I'm convinced that God wants us to understand about him, with God, relationship always precedes rules. And, and I know that's an admittedly counterintuitive reality, but here's the thing. It's true. In the Bible, when, before God gives anyone a rule by which to live, he establishes a relationship with them. And, and to be clear, that relationship um, it wasn't like the one between a police officer and someone who's been pulled over on Fulton for having expired tags on their minivan, just hypothetically, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it, it's, that's not the kind of relationship. It's not a cosmic police officer. It's more like the relationship between a loving father and his children, one in which the father desires to teach his children how to live so that they could thrive in the world. Okay, so now with the rest of our time today, I want to show you how I arrived at that conclusion by exploring a section of the second book in the Bible. It's a narrative that we call Exodus. And uh, here's a bit of helpful context to sort of set the stage for what happens in the text that we're going to explore. Um, As the narrative Exodus opens, the children of a man named Israel have been living in Egypt for 400 years or so. And during that time, they've grown from a family of around 70 people to like a nation-sized population who have been enslaved by Egypt's leader, a man called Pharaoh. And now it's worth noting that during those generations in Egypt, the children of Israel would most likely have taken on a largely Egyptian worldview, as well as an Egyptian understanding of how people interacted with God's. In other words, they would have viewed the heavens with suspicion and trepidation because, like the Egyptians, they would have viewed the gods as sort of petty and jealous and insecure deities who were constantly scanning the population for anyone who wasn't following the rules or honoring them in order to rain down punishment on them. Anyway, the author of Exodus records that when the predetermined time had come, God, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, made contact with a man named Moses, and then subsequently rescued the children of Israel from slavery. He led them out of Egypt, and then around 45 days later, he led them to a mountain in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, a location that would have looked something like, well, like this. It's dry, and it's desolate. And and when they arrived, God invited Moses, sort of the leader that he had appointed for the children of Israel, to climb the mountain and to have a conversation with him. It's a conversation that begins with a little bit of an unexpected twist. Here's what God said to Moses. He said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. At which point, as I imagine it, Moses would have wanted to slowly raise his hand and say something like, "Um, excuse me, hate to interrupt God, sir, but um, I need to ask a clarifying question. I mean, did you really mean to say that I'm the Lord your God, or did you mean to say I am the Lord the God? Like, you've obviously, you're powerful and you just rescued us, but, but our God, or, or maybe you meant to say I am the Lord 
a God. I mean, you, you said that you are the Lord, your God, and that implies relationship. See, that's personal, but I'm sure as you know, we haven't done anything yet to be your people. Respectfully, we don't even know what we're supposed to do. You haven't given us any rules to follow. So how exactly did you get to be our God and how exactly did we get to be your people? And as I imagine it, have Moses, had Moses paused to reflect on God's words before raising this question, then I'm fairly certain his mind would have recalled a few conversations that he had had previously with God. Conversations that had taken place a few weeks earlier before Israel had been rescued. I mean, during the first of those conversations, God had made what had been a very strange comment to Moses. That all of a sudden, after the rescue, standing at Mount Sinai would have made a lot more sense. Here's what God had told Moses the first time he had made contact. He says to Moses, say to the Israelites, so the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Okay, not your Lord yet, but I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. He goes on. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then hear this. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. In other words, I will rescue you. And when I do, you will belong to me and I will belong to you. And just notice here that God articulates a desire to be in relationship with and to care for the children of Israel. A relationship that couldn't possibly have been based on their behavior because, again, he hadn't told them what to do yet. Anyway, I'm convinced that during his conversation with God on the top of Mount Sinai, Moses would have thought of that first conversation and he also would have recalled a conversation that he had had with Pharaoh, conversations that included the revelation that the God who had contacted Moses wanted the people that he had marked to be his own to be free. And not surprisingly, Pharaoh wasn't a fan of this idea. I mean, uh, he thought of the children of Israel as his people, more like his possessions. And, and moreover, they were like the labor force behind a significant part of the Egyptian economy at the time. And so Pharaoh, and moreover, Pharaoh doesn't even believe that the God of Moses existed. And so he repeatedly refuses to let the people go. And in response, God introduces himself to Pharaoh in dramatic fashion. Through a series of nine awkwardly specific plagues, you can read about them after lunch, trust me, right? God systematically dethroned and defamed the reputation of some of Egypt's most famous deities. In fact, he began by saying to Pharaoh, in effect, you think that the god Hapi controls the Nile River. I brought a picture of the aforementioned Hopi. He says, well, you think Hopi controls the Nile? I'll turn it to blood. And then a few plagues later, God said in effect to Pharaoh, you believe that the god Ra has dominion over the sun. Well, I'll plunge your entire country into darkness. I'm telling you, as I imagine it, you know, as all of this is happening, the children of Israel were watching in stunned silence. I mean, they couldn't believe that a God was fighting for them. They didn't think that anybody cared about them. They were slaves. They were property. Anyway, as the account continues, we learn that even after has God, God has unleashed this series of devastating plagues on Egypt, Pharaoh still refused to release the slaves. And so, in response, God issued, well, it was like an invitation to the children of Israel. 
Uh, he told Moses, he said, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. He says, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You can leave your three-legged lamb lucky in the pen, right? And you must take them from the sheep or the goats. He goes on, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And we're like going, okay, whoa, <laughs> right? Like if, to us, this is really gross. I mean, that's a lot of lambs. But see, to ancient people, slaughtering lambs and goats was routine. So they would have been tracking. They would have said, okay, you know, this God has demonstrated power and now he's telling us to do this. So, okay. But see, as God's instruction continues, things got, things got weird, even by their standards. And here's what I mean. God tells Moses to tell the people to take some of the blood, like from the lamb or the goat that you killed, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where you eat the lambs. I'd be thinking, okay, if all my neighbors do this too, because I don't want to be the only one doing this, super weird, right? He says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Like no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so you probably already caught this, but like this moment is the origin of the Jewish feast of Passover that is still celebrated by Jewish people all over the world today. Anyway, um, although the specifics of God's instructions here are really odd, it's critical for us to note what God is really trying to communicate through these instructions. Namely, he wants the children of Israel to know that he is not primarily a lawgiver. He's a rescuer. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. It's who he is and it's what he does. And he's also a God of love who won't force relationship on anyone who doesn't desire it. And so he invites the children of Israel, to trust him by doing what he asked them to do, even though it didn't make any sense to them, and even though it would have felt really strange to wipe the blood of a recently sacrificed lamb on the doorframe of your house. <laughs> and to be fair, they only needed to do it once as a way to signal to God that they wanted to accept his invitation to relationship. So, so that's something, right? Just one time, and, and then God would know that we wanted to be a part of this new sort of relationship with him. So as the account continues, the people do what God invited them to do, and the next morning, they woke up with a new identity as God's adopted children. And I'm telling you, in that moment in Israel's history, they, will, they were crystal clear about one thing. They hadn't been brought to Mount Sinai to learn how to establish a relationship with God. They had been brought to the mountain because they were already in a relationship with God. And as, as incredible as it must have seemed, God had chosen to establish a relationship with a group of people before they knew any of the rules that he would give them to govern their lives. It was so simple. It was so beautiful. In fact, I like to summarize what happened this way. God reached out in love and they responded with trust. God reached out in love, and they responded with trust. He asked them to do one admittedly unusual thing, and they had done it. And that, as it turned out, 
was all it took. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this over the past few weeks. And, and at least to me, the fact that God chose relationship before rules, it really affirms that he understands something that is undeniably true for all of us humans. And it goes like this. When you place rules before relationship, insecurity reigns. And if you grew up in a religious environment that placed rules before relationship, you're like probably ready to move right now. Like, mm, right? Because that's been your experience. It's true every single time. Because see, when you place rules before relationship, you never can really know know how good is good enough to earn a right standing with God. Like, do we need to be 51% good and 49% bad? And you got to think about that. Would I make that cut? I don't even know, right? Or does God grade like on a curve? And if so, what is the passing grade? Because I had some bad memories of the whole curve thing from college, right? Yeah. I'm telling you, a rules-first approach always generates unanswerable questions, and that's why a religious framework that puts rules before relationship doesn't work even though it's still taught all the time. I'm actually convinced that the practice of reversing the order of rules in relationship is why so many people, so many of my friends, resist both God and church and our world today. I had a friend say to me, you know, every time I would go to church, I would leave feeling bad about myself. And I mean, if I want to feel bad about myself, I can go golfing. At least I'll get a tan, right? I don't need to go to church to feel bad about myself. But they're, because they would say, you know, my entire church experience was about trying to follow rules and be re, be re, being reminded that I wasn't going to do it perfectly. It's like I came to the understanding that if I did it well enough, then maybe, hopefully, God would accept me as one of his kids. But see, again, and this is really good news, that's not what the authors of the Bible tell us about God. They report that 3,500 years ago, in one of the most dramatic ways imaginable, God placed relationship before rules. And, uh, you know, I, I almost can't help myself. There's one more thing we need to talk about today because, um, and I almost cut this down. Like, you can't cut this. This is super important. 1,500 years after the Exodus, Jesus reaffirmed God's intent to prioritize relationship over rules. And here's how it went down. On the last night of his life, Jesus and his first followers were gathered in a room in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate a meal that launched the Jewish feast of Passover. It was a meal that he knew would be the last he would share with his followers. And that evening, an early Jesus follower by the name of Luke recorded that everything was proceeding as far as the meal is concerned, according to the established tradition, 1,500 years, Jewish people would gather, they would exercise, through, they'd work through the same script for this meal. And so everything was kind of going right along as scheduled until the moment that Jesus raised a cup of wine that was intended to recall the moment that God had rescued Israel from slavery. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And you should know that when Jesus said this, his disciples would have been confused. I mean, they were part of the children of Israel and they were already in a relationship with God. They were already in a covenant relationship with God. Moreover, Jesus identified this new covenant as being ratified by his blood being poured out. But as he said those words, he wasn't bleeding. So they were probably thinking, you know, is he using some metaphor here? Like, what is he really after? But most of all, I think the disciples that night would have just sat in stunned silence, just trying to absorb Jesus' words. 
And they didn't fully understand it that night, but God was about to do something new, something revolutionary in the world. And the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, was about to be spilled in order to rescue a new nation of people from the slavery of sin. A nation that, as they would soon learn, was to be made up of people from all nations. In fact, Jesus' final instructions to his first followers were for them to tell the world that God had invited everyone into a relationship with him, not because of anything they had done or would do, but because of something that had been done for them when Jesus died on the cross. And the message was that anyone who chose to accept the invitation of Jesus, anyone who chose to put their trust in him, to symbolically put his blood on the door frames of their heart, would be adopted as one of his kids. And by the way, after that moment, after that happens, if God ever gives you a rule by which to live, it comes from a place of love and it's evidence that you're already in. God gives rules to his children. He doesn't give rules to people who aren't yet his children. And, and, and so the rules are never a condition of acceptance. Because again, with God, relationship always precedes rules. To me, this is the wonder of, this is the wonder of the creator. And it's so different and it's so powerful and it's so beautiful than, than other religious systems that people have come up with. It's like, it, that's the story of every other religious system. It's rules, get you to a relationship, but that's not the story of God. He reaches out to us, all of us, in love, and then invites us to respond with trust. And then he reveals the rules for life that he designed for us to help us thrive in this life. All that to say, if you're with us today, if you're watching online, and, and, and you have a desire to come to God, I have some really good news for you. Like, whatever is going on in your life right now, God wants a relationship with you. And I know that because when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for all sin, he died for your sin. Which means, and this is something to think about, he knew that you would be a sinner. There you go, right? And he assumed that you and I would get it wrong. In fact, he died on the cross because he knew we would get it wrong. And he wants to be your God and he wants to be your deliverer, and he wants to be your savior. And so he invites you to do what the nation of Israel did 3,500 years ago. He invites you to trust him. And fortunately, he doesn't need you to paint the doorframe with the blood of a lamb. Again, your neighbors would probably think that's weird, right? But he invites you to place your faith in the blood of his son, the lamb of God, who died once and for all for your sin and for my sin. And the authors of the, the Bible are clear. Like when you do that, you're in. You're adopted as one of his kids. And so I got to ask you, have you ever had a moment in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus? If not, 
the good news is you're welcome to do it right now. Like God loves you enough to make it that simple. He's done everything necessary other than force you into relationship because that's not love. And love is who he is. All right, so now if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. Sorry, would you pray with me? (laughs) Heavenly Father, these um, these are deep waters and yet so beautiful is the message of grace. Thank you for loving us because you are good, not because we are good. I pray for friends that that are here, that are watching online, that just feel like they have disqualified themselves from a relationship with you. And I thank you that the testimony of the authors of the Bible affirm over and over and over and over again that that is simply not true, that you sent Jesus for sinners to offer us a way forward and to offer us relationships. So thank you for loving imperfect people because we are all imperfect people. Thank you for grace. Thank you for hope. And thank you for preserving the story of redemption for all of us that thousands of years after it occurred still fills us with wonder. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done. And we will forever be thanking you for the gift of Jesus, a gift that changed everything. It is in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, and everyone said amen. Friends, once again this week, if you need to pray with someone, we have some volunteers that would love to meet you right under the screen. But otherwise, grace and peace to you, and we will see you virtually next week for part two of Who is God? Yes. Oh.